Lovely to see you as you take your seats. There's plenty more people coming in the door. So welcome, especially if it's your first time. If you've not been with us before, we hope that you have um, a really lovely time with us, that you feel part of us, that you enjoy the meeting and you take away something that maybe you haven't heard before. If you are new, then hopefully you've been given one of these welcome packs by our welcome team as you walked in the door. Contributions. If you do have a contribution, a word, um, a passage of scripture that you'd like to read, a prayer, please come forward and uh, speak to uh, myself and Nathan, who's responsible elder, and we can give you a microphone so that everyone can hear. If you've got something you're not sure about, we'd especially like you to come. Last week, I shared something, and then someone after the meeting said to me, I had almost exactly the same word, but I haven't been here very long, so I didn't feel I could share it. That's not true. You might have been here um, for weeks or years or decades like me, or you may just be visiting and you have something that you feel God has put on your heart to share with us. So please come forward and share that. Children, if you have children, there is children's work downstairs this morning. Um, after about three songs, um, children will be going downstairs. Follow the crowd when they go. If you're not sure where to go, and children will be registered in their room where their children's group is. So Christine will be leading worship very soon. Susan is going to come and pray with us a bit later. And it's a bit of a Jenkins show this morning because Sean's preaching. I won't tell you how many slides he's got. <laughs> You're here for the long haul. Right. Uh, Roger. Roger's got something he'd like to share with us. Good morning. Uh, a while ago, I woke um, up in the morning with something on my mind, a bit unusual for me because I sleep the whole night through. So I had this a word and I thought, oh yeah, and it bothered me. And the next day I had it again and I thought, this must be from God. So this morning I, I sent it to the elders and said, what do you think about this? Because it's a bit unusual. So um, this is what I'm sharing for you this morning. It's a word for, I'm not sure how many, I think quite a few people. So please, whatever part, it's odd, but there may be something for you. I believe there is. And the word I had was hat. Yeah. So I bought a hat. The first hat I've got, as you could well see, is a bowler hat. And this is, means a lot. This actually was the hat my dad had at his wedding in 1934. Um, hardly worn, because he probably didn't wear it. He didn't have a lot of money, so this was a big outlay to him, because it's a very good hat. So he wore this hat. Well, he didn't wear it, actually, I don't think, but he carried it. It was all about image. To him, this was very important and part of his image. Another hat that we may have, which is a bit different, is this one. You may recognise. I could say, for those of you in the know, is this a hat or is this a cake? And <laughs> if you're looking at me puzzled, when Sean retired, I made a hat that looked like this hat. So this is a... Yeah, and they had it, yeah. 
So this is a police uh, officer's hat. Got to be careful what I say here. It's a police officer's hat. So it's very important when Sean, anyone in the police is wearing it, they then take on that role. Also in the army, hats are very important. Something you may or may not realise, but in the police, in all of the armed forces, they do not salute if they haven't got a hat on. Unlike you might see things on the television of other countries, in England, an, an active soldier would not salute without his hat on. So it's very uh, an important issue. Another hat, coming a bit down to earth, would be this hat. If you can just about see it. Yeah, it's not very good. Uh, the chef's hat. Um, I don't wear it when I'm cooking, but immediately I put that on, you know, you know what I'm about. You would know and be an expectant. Something else I've got, one of me, which sort of defines me a bit, is this straw hat. It's actually um, a genuine Panama hat. If people want to know what a genuine Panama hat, come and see me after. It's inside. So this is a genuine Panama hat. And I think it sort of suits me. I wear it in the summer. It looks good. I think it looks good. And it protects me from the sun. And so it's... Yeah, it does all those things. Lastly was the hat that I would wear to church this morning. People may well have seen me in this sort of hat. I wear this. I wear a hat quite regularly. This is really good because it's actually almost waterproof and it's crushable. So you can crush it up and it will go back into its shape. So another hat that sort of says what I'm about. So the thing this morning... I'm asking is, what hat, what hat are you wearing? What hat defines you? It could be hats, but what defines you? What hat? What is your identity? When Sean's wearing that, she becomes a police officer, different identity. When I was a, a train driver, when I wore the uniform, it was different. People reacted to me very differently. It always surprised me. When my dad had that, it was something different. It actually wasn't him at all, because he wasn't like that. It was very a down-to-earth, a not-dress-up person. But to him, it was important. So, what is your identity? What identity do you portray? And where is your identity? Is it in you? Is it in somebody, somebody that you look up to or aspire to be? Something that your work, something that you think you should be? Is it in Christ? Is it in the Holy Spirit? So the question this morning that I'm leaving with you is, what identity do you portray? Do you portray your, your true self? Do you portray Christ? Amen. Thank you, Roger. We can't see Jesus. We can't see God now. But there are many different adjectives or words used to describe him. 
in a similar sort of way. And we're going to start our worship, our sung worship, by singing one which describes Jesus as the lion, the lion who fights the battles, and the lamb who died for us. So let's stand and sing the lion and the lamb.
lion, he's the lamb, and he's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. Hey! He's our rescuer. Hey! We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Hey! Oh, how grace abounds. Hey! We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. There is good news for the captive.
it's probably time for the children and young people to go now to their groups. Shall we pray for them as they go? Father, we ask that you will bless every person going downstairs now, from the youngest to the oldest. Pray that they may all encounter you this morning, that they may all come to know you better, learn more about you, and know your love and your peace. Amen. In Micah chapter 7 verse 19, it says that God takes our sins, he tramples them under his feet, and he puts them in the depths of the ocean. In Psalm 103, it says he redeems us from death, and he's removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. We're going to sing a song based on Psalm 103 now. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. And rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Lord to anger and rich in love. And the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all. and
Let's go. 
thank God for that word which um, my good friend Roger brought earlier. And I felt it was very much for the Lord for me, and I believe it might be for quite a few people this morning. And it cost him a lot to do that this morning, didn't it, Roger? It cost you a lot. And um, I believe God might want to say to us, I want to free you to bring words. I want to free you to bring gifts of the Spirit. This is a church which is rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is glorified. The Father's will is sought. But he wants to use us as the body of Christ to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which appear in different forms. And I have it on my heart here. And I've got to say to Nathan and to Sean that this has been very much on my heart since we've been blessed and privileged to come along and worship with you in the past few years. But I believe God wants to give more freedom, but you have to step out. It's just like putting a hat on, isn't it? Don't be afraid what you look like or what you're going to sound like. God wants to do a lot, and I believe it's happening now. When I think of hats, I think of roles. Um, and as Roger has explained about the different roles that we play, um, I was reminded of a role that God has given me and a identity or a hat. And I was wondering, um, and I always, when, I remi- when he reminds me of that, I'm always quite um, chuffed that he would call me that. I want you to remember what God has called you. It's our identity in Christ. It's a very generic um, expression. He calls you my beloved, my daughter, my son. He's called me something else and I'm not telling you what. (laughs) But there might be a very personal thing that God has called you and I want you to remember that now. Isn't this wonderful? Just hearing God speaking to us, stirring us, wanting to meet with us. We're going to carry on and sing another song, but just where we are, why don't we just reach out to him? Come, mighty God. We thank you that you want to put a hat on us of your identity, that you want to come and reveal again who we are, that we're sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you that you want to come and bring freedom. And release us into all that you've called us to as a church. Come, Holy Spirit, and do that. And we thank you that you speak names of love over us. That you have names that you want to speak right over us this morning. Lord, open our hearts, Lord, to receive you afresh in this moment. As we continue in worshipping, Lord God, come amongst us. Mighty God, release us. Release us in your purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's stand, let's worship going to sing your grace is enough
a Bible, 
you might want to look at Psalm 11 and keep a finger in Isaiah 6. Um, it's what God spoke to me about this week. Psalm 11, verse 3, says, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his holy throne. Isaiah 6. Isaiah, it starts um, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now for Isaiah, that was a big thing. And we're going through a big thing at the moment, aren't we? Not just the Queen dying, it's all the other things that are happening. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. And we are coming to this God at a time when our foundations might be wobbling. Perhaps your personal foundations are wobbling there's something that's happened in your life. There's certainly plenty in this world that is happening now. But we have come to the Lord on his throne. We've just been singing about him. And we have got a way right into that temple. Jesus has made a way. And now we're going to come into God's presence, or remain in his presence, really. But we're going to pray for each other. Uh, I'm going to do some of it, but so are you. I've got four things. First of all, me or you or the person you know who is going through a really difficult time. Second, our society, the strikes, the NHS. Maybe you know someone involved. Thirdly, our government and fourthly, the world and, and the strife that's going on, the wars. Now, I've had time to think about this, and I've got a little prayer. But then I'm going to stop and let you pray for the person 
that God has reminded you of. And you can do it in your head or you can do it out loud. Either would be good. And then, don't worry, I've got the mic, so I'll keep us moving. But make sure that you are praying too. It's not just me up here. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we have access into your throne room, that you have made a way through Jesus' blood to guide our thoughts as we, so guide our thoughts as we pray to you today. And right now, Lord, we want to bring you those who we know whose foundations have shifted this week, those with family problems, illness, trouble at work, stressed or in physical or emotional pain. We bring them before you now. Father, we pray for our society, for those caught up in disputes, for those individuals who are caught up in industrial trouble. We pray for the dock workers, the postmen, people working on the railways, the lawyers. Lord, we pray for managers and union leaders. And we name those we know and pray for your wisdom in each situation. Father, we pray for our government. We pray particularly for our new king, that he will follow you and listen to you. We pray for our prime minister, who's got some very firm ideas. Lord, we pray that she will know that she needs your help. We pray for your ministers, for MPs, for advisors, for people who work on councils. Lord, we ask that your will may be done in our government and that you will give our government people in charge wisdom and that they will care for those they serve. Lord, we pray for our world full of strife. We pray for those soldiers caught up in battle on both sides. We pray for those who are fleeing for their lives. Those people caught up in war who are, who are hearing bombs. We pray for children and mothers and fathers. And Lord, there are many places in this world where people are fearful we would pray especially for your people. 
that they may wear the hat, as Roger said this morning, and bring your light into the darkest situation. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to approach your throne. We ask you to accept the prayers we offered to this morning. We know that you heard us, and if we know that you hear us, we know that you will answer in the best way. And we pray that in all things Jesus may be glorified. Amen. Good morning, folks. Uh, my name's Sean. Do I have to hold on to something metal? <laughs> I, I'm part of the leadership team here, and I don't normally make these kind of noises. Um, right. In the moment, we're going to have a, a PowerPoint pop up, I hope. And uh, there we go. Therefore, for those of you who have been around for the last few weeks, you'll know that we uh, have started to uh, look through the letter that Paul sent to the church in Rome. And uh, we're doing it a little bit differently in that uh, the, the first week was like a, more of a, a theological looking at the background, looking into the book, and then the second week was more application. So we come to week three, and uh, so this week again is a little bit more theological, a little bit uh, looking at what Paul was trying to say, and then next week uh, Rob is going to bring a bit more application to it. But I, I, I sincerely hope that uh, I don't lose you this week. There's some amazing truths, but it is a very complicated uh, book the book of Romans. And I just wanted to uh, give a little bit of a, a background to the book of Romans. So firstly, then, I want to say that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He uh, planted many churches um, you know, throughout the Roman Empire, but he didn't plant this one. Okay? He didn't plant the church in Rome. Uh, he'd probably not even visited it at that point. He'd not sent others before him to be involved. But he wanted to uh, share his gospel message as a prelude to, uh, to going there. So how was the church in Rome born? Where did it come from? Who established it? Well, as you can see, I've uh, put up a passage here. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, 
I I'm not going to read all of it. As you can see, I've skipped lots of bits. But what it is, we're starting at the day of Pentecost. So this is where the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles, on the disciples. Um, and this really is where the church as a whole is born. Jesus has ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured out. This is the day of Pentecost. And it says here, when the day of Pentecost came... They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And then it lists a number of nations and then says, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. And then they said, so these people from different nations said, We hear them, this was the apostles, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? So the likelihood is that this church in Rome was born out of the day of Pentecost. The, these folk, these Jews and converts to Judaism had traveled from Rome to Jerusalem for uh, the Passover uh, festival. They were there and then they heard Peter give this first sermon. And it says at the time that 3,000 were added into the church, and then they dispersed across the nations. So the church was established just after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. Maybe 30 AD, there's, but thereabouts, okay? That's when it would appear that this church in Rome was established. And then over the next 19 years, these Jews and Jewish converts, they've gone back to Rome, they've established the church, and during that time, they had evangelized the, Rome, the city of Rome, and Gentiles would have also come in to this church. So it, after about 19 years, you can imagine that this church was Jews, Jewish converts, and Gentiles all together maybe even doing well together. You know, we don't know. We don't know anything really about the church at that point, but we can, you know, this church is established now 19 years. Elders would have been raised up. Ministries would have been started, you know, children's work and looking after the widows, all those kind of things. Think of the things that we do as a church. You know, these may be the kind of things that they'd got established, got going, and everyone would have been involved Maybe the leaders were still all Jews. Maybe some of them were Gentiles. But in 49 AD, that all changed because the emperor Claudius, he said, right, I've had enough of all the Jews in this city. There was about 40,000 of them. He said, get out. I don't want you here anymore. And all the Jews were expelled from Rome. You can imagine the uproar in the city, but you can also imagine the uproar in this church. You know, leaders disappearing, ministry team disappearing, folk sent away. And suddenly this church has to completely reinvent itself. Suddenly it is just Gentiles, no Jews. And then in 54 AD, after the emperor Nero had had the emperor Claudius murdered, Nero said, right, all the Jews can come back because 
he saw that the Jews brought profit and finances into Rome. So he said, come back, come back. So they came back. And then you have these Jewish Christians returning and wanting to fit back into the church. Maybe they wanted their old roles back. Well, I was a, a leader doing this. I did that. Come on, I want my place back. But this was five years later, and the church had moved on. And so you can imagine, again, this uproar in the church, the, these issues that have, would have arisen. Um, this church, very different from all the other churches because of what these two emperors had done. And this is what Paul is speaking into when he wrote to the, the church in Rome in uh, 57 AD. So three years after the Jews had come back, Paul writes to them. And this is why when you read through Romans, you see such that, you know, he's constantly referring to Gentiles and to Jews and the, the, the tensions between them because he's trying to deal with this situation that has arisen out of uh, you know, the history the background of this church. It's a unique situation. And this is why when we read through uh, the book of Romans, we need to understand this is the background to it. That actually, this is why there's tension in there and that Paul's trying to deal with so blatantly between the issues of Gentiles and Jews. So moving on quickly, the five years, a change of leadership, then they return. Paul, the book of Romans is complicated. Yeah? I find it complicated. I, I've spent a lot of time reading through the, the book of Romans of late, and it is complicated. But there is incredible truths in here. Amazing gospel truths and we're going to be looking at that this morning we're going to be looking righteousness through faith i just want to pray and then we're going to dive straight into that lord we thank you for your word that it feeds it nourishes it supplies our needs and i pray lord this morning that out of your word you would transform lives hearts would be changed Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you as we see the wonder of your mercy, your love lavished upon us and our position now in Christ. Amen. Okay, so the title, Righteousness Through Faith. First question, what is righteousness? I mean, we use the word regularly enough, but what actually does it mean? Does it matter if we do or don't know? Actually, I think it's so important we understand what this word righteousness means. Wayne Grudem writes this, and talking about God, obviously, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard what is right so righteousness referring to God is being right being perfect Moses writes in Deuteronomy 
32, verse 4, again referring to God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So righteousness, to act in accordance with what is right. All works are perfect. All ways are just. Always faithful. And does no wrong. Upright. So there we have it. Righteousness. To act in accordance with what is right. To be perfect. To be just. To be faithful. Does no wrong. To be upright. Now Paul talks a lot about righteousness in God. He talks about God's righteousness. But he also talks about our righteousness. And we're going to read a short passage from Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 to 24. I hope you can read it, but I'm going to read it uh, out. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Remember, Paul was referring to the Jews and Gentiles. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. Our God is righteous. He is perfect and he cannot let sin go unpunished. He cannot tolerate sin. In God's eyes, sin is wrong and must be paid for. So if someone commits murder... We accept that they should be judged and punished. This is how God views sin. Romans 6, verse 23 starts, For the wages of sin is death. That's the punishment for sin. The punishment has already been set. In any law court, different crimes warrant different punishments for sin before a holy God. The cost of sin is death. And then going back to our passage, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everyone, guilty. No one but God is holy. It's not looking good at the moment, is it? Let's move on. Talking of God's righteousness, it says, 
this righteousness is then given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, Paul gives us hope. He gave the Romans hope. God's righteousness, his holiness, his perfection can be ours despite our sin through faith in Jesus. The gift is not just freedom from death, though. It's not just freedom from the punishment, no. But it is life in Christ. What he deserved, what was his, then now becomes ours through faith in him. We have his authority. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are accepted into his presence. We have eternity with God. Looking a little bit closer then, what does it mean to be justified in verse 24? Consider a defendant in a courtroom accused of a crime. Maybe it is murder, maybe burglary, maybe just a motoring offence. They're found guilty. The arguments have gone on, the the lawyers have said their thing, the evidence has been presented and the defendant found guilty. Next, a sentence to be punished. To fit the crime, yes? The judge assesses all the information and they pass sentence. Maybe a fine, imprisonment, maybe even the death penalty, depending where you are. But maybe, just maybe, the judge might be lenient. Maybe, despite the guilty verdict, the judge might pardon the defendant. The verdict is unchanged, they're still guilty, but the punishment not imposed. This is what it means to be pardoned. Apologies, I should have skipped that through. But that's not what it means to be justified. Do you see, to be justified, and this is what God says over us who believe in Christ, to be justified means to be found not guilty. No grounds for punishment. No reason for any punishment, innocent. This is what it means to be justified in Christ. Found not guilty through faith in Christ. I want to read an extract from this book. This is a book by Fillmore entitled Romans. He describes a picture, courtroom, and the, he says this, the picture begins with Jesus sitting in the courtroom as judge and jury and with us standing in the dock to await his decision. Now, Paul has no time for the sloppy idea that the father plays the role of judge on his own and the son only enters the scene to play the role of saviour. No, Paul told us in Romans 2:16 that Jesus is the judge and jury and he passes a clear verdict. We are guilty as charged of rebellion against God, and the fixed penalty for that crime is death. 
The final judgment day is yet to arrive, but Jesus anticipates that day by revealing his verdict and sentence ahead of time. Suddenly, Jesus changes his position in the picture. Now he is standing next to us and arguing our case. 1 John 2, 1 can be literally translated. If anyone sins, we have a defense lawyer arguing our case to the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Paul now paints the the Father as judge and Jesus as the attorney, who points out an unconsidered factor which will reverse the initial verdict. New evidence came to light in 30 AD when Jesus was himself put on trial and declared innocent of any crime. A life of perfect law-keeping as a working-class Galilean had made him righteous. Now he brings that righteousness from God into the courtroom and tells the judge that it is ours because we trusted in his gospel. The accused is guilty through his own deeds, but deemed entirely innocent through the deeds of another. Suddenly, the galleries erupt with clamoring spectators who oppose the defense lawyer's proposal. The accused is guilty as charged of rebellion and sin, so the judge cannot simply pretend those actions never happened. Faith is all very well, but whatever happened to the Old Testament promise Paul quoted in Romans 2, 6, that God will give to each person according to what he has done. Jesus replies by telling the judge that his argument rests on the fact that through the gospel, he and the accused possess one legal identity. You are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us our righteousness. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, we stand in the dock united with Jesus and hear God pass two verdicts. In verse 26, it says, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who who have faith in Jesus. Paul's picture therefore ends with Jesus being convicted and condemned to crucifixion because of our guilt and with our being justified and exonerated because of his innocence. We find ourselves outside the courtroom listening to the sound of nails being driven into Jesus' hands and feet when suddenly we feel the hand of a court official on our shoulder and spin round. But it's not a team of appeal lawyers demanding a retrial because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The official simply wants to reassure us that this not guilty verdict is a once for all decision. We have been vindicated of every charge, past, present, and future, so that no one can lodge a fresh accusation against us. That's what it means to be united with Jesus by faith in the gospel concerning God's Son. Time's pressing on. I think there's enough just in that for us. Just going to skip forward a little bit. Through faith, we accept 
Jesus as Lord. We believe what he has done for us. We believe who he is. We believe Jesus conquered sin and death, that he is Lord of all. We accept through faith that Jesus is our Savior. No other way to God but through Jesus Christ. No works are good enough. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Through faith, we receive the free gift of righteousness from God. Not through works, through faith. Through faith, we can regularly acknowledge that it is a free gift, not affected by works or a lack of them. Only what he did for us. The gift of righteousness is free. It is free. Free. To conclude then, the only thing standing between us and judgment is the mercy of the God we have offended. And yet, in John 3.16, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I would have discussed Abraham and David, but, it's, but we may be compromised like Abraham or virtuous like David. But either way, our hope of salvation is for God to reckon our sins laid on Jesus and his righteousness reckoned to us. I'm going to uh, just pray. Lord, it's a free gift. We can't do anything to earn it. We receive salvation through faith. And Lord, I just want to pray for us. Pray for each person here. It may be that you've been a Christian for many, many years. I pray that you would have fresh freshly know that you don't earn it. That whether you had a good week or a bad week, the gift is still free. Christ paid the price that we wouldn't have to. And I want to pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you yet, Lord, that you would speak into their hearts, bring a challenge that they would know that they are a sinner before you, and yet, you died for them. I pray, Lord, that they would even now receive you as Lord, accept you as Savior, confess their sins, and receive you an eternal life. Lord, help us to live in your freedom. Not just a freedom from sin, 
with the freedom of being in Christ. All that is his, ours. Thank you, Sean. Just to continue from that, just a moment, Clem um, shared some verses from Matthew uh, with us uh, during worship. And um, if you're feeling like you need prayer, and maybe you don't know Jesus, maybe all this is completely new to you this morning, and you, you just want someone to chat things through, here's the verse in Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I, that's Jesus, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I'm sure Clem would pray, and any of us who you've seen up here this morning would pray if you um, would like that at the end of the meeting. So just to finish, we... Um, we as our church family um, obviously have birthdays, we like to celebrate significant birthdays for those who are over 70. I have a significant birthday next year, but I don't quite get into that category. I'll leave you to work out which significant birthday it is. But uh, Gerald, Gerald's sitting at the back. He is now 90. Amazing. When When I thought of Gerald, very quickly a few words sprang to mind. Faithful servant, wise, great prayer, local historian, full of facts. So, yes, happy birthday, Gerald, from all of us at Harvest Church. Thank you. Amen. A few notices. Um, welcome tea this afternoon for those who are, haven't been with us very long or being with us for a little while want to find out more about what Harvest Church is, what we believe, ask questions. This afternoon there will be a welcome tea at 4.30 here at Maltings with refreshments, tea and cake for anyone who wants to um, come along to find a little, little bit more out about who we are, what we do and I think Rob and Clem, you're hosting aren't you? And Karen. So they will be here. If you have a welcome pack and you have been able to fill in the Connect card, one of these with your details, please feel free to put it in the offering um, box over on the table. That's just for us to be able to uh, make contact with you in the week. And if there's anything that we can help you with, then we can do that and you can get to know us a little bit more. Uh, Karen's... Update, email update has all the information for this week, including our prayer on Tuesday. Nathan's nodding, yes, here in the building at 8 till 9. And Alpha starts this week, Thursday evening, Alpha starts. So don't uh, forget that, either to invite or to pray when that's going on. And finally, parents, please collect your children about three minutes ago. Okay, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Uh, tea and coffee are going to be served in the cafe area. And please come and ask a prayer if you need it. Thank you.